Welcome to the party, pals. I'm Phil Gawthorne, action movie screenwriter. And I'm Liam Billingham, movie podcaster. And together we host Die Hard on a Blank, a podcast from Sugar23 that explores the influence of Die Hard on action cinema. In each episode, we'll talk about one major action movie that was released after Die Hard. Now, some of these movies take place on a bus. On a boat. Or even a roadhouse. Uh, sure. The point is, these are action movies that couldn't exist without Die Hard, and its DNA is everywhere. Die Hard on a Blank is a celebration of action movies and a deep dive into the ways that Die Hard shaped the action genre. So if you're a casual fan or an action movie Die Hard. Ooh, very nice. Then Die Hard on a Blank is for you. Yes, you personally. Our first two episodes, which are all about the original 1988 masterpiece Die Hard, drop December 21st, because Die Hard is a Christmas movie, wherever you get your podcasts. Phil, do the line. Now we have a podcast. (laughs) Ho, ho, ho. I'm George Vergopoulos. And I'm Kel Karpinski. And this is... Uberbusters. Yes. We did it, Kel. I know. Back for a third time. Back for a third time. How does it feel to be back? It feels good. Um, I feel like we're missing someone, but... We're missing um, Liam. Oh, yeah. Okay, that's who it is. He's not here in the palatial Uberbusters studio that is my dingy Clinton Hill apartment. But there's also a certain kind of freedom without Liam here. I guess, Yeah. There's that kind of dictatorship that Liam brings with him. The there, there, there is a little bit of authoritarian kind of quality that he has when it comes to recording, making sure the levels are okay, making sure that. I mean, yeah, he he can get a little intense, but um, you know, yeah. But we do miss him. We do miss him. Yeah, we do miss him. So not only are you are you are I think your first second timer, and now also our first third timer. I am. Yeah. So again, wait. Am I the only? Am, does it mean I'm the only person be who's the been only, on every season? Yeah, I think you're the only person who's Woo! been on every season. Awesome. How does that feel? I feel honored. And again, the fame is kind of overwhelming, though, isn't it? It is so overwhelming. Like I can't walk down the street without, you know, people recognizing me or something. I don't know. <laughs> I was recently out in LA, and I too was just constantly stopped in the streets, and it was kind of just, um, it was overwhelming. But yeah. I'm enjoying. I'm enjoying all the intention. That's I, good. I really love it. Yeah, it's good. It's good. So what are we talking today, Kel? Um, we're talking about the 1966 movie Batman. We are, yes. Which, by the way, before we obviously we delve into it, you tweeted last night, why is this film an hour 45 minutes? And I also, by the way, had the same feeling. It it wasn't... It didn't seem that long, like, to be fair. Um, but when I looked to see that that was the running time and I was only in, like, 15 minutes, I was like, how how the fuck are they going to drag this out for an hour 45? But I, you know, it was fine. But I just, I didn't, I didn't enjoy it, I don't think. And I don't think it needed to be an hour 45. Although I didn't, it didn't feel like I was slogging through it, if that's fair. Like, it didn't need to be that long, but it also didn't feel like a slog. Like, I think both those things can be true. (laughs) Both those things can be true. And they should also put that quote of yours on the box, on the the DVD re-release, the Blu-ray special. It was fine, says Kelly Karpinski. So, Batman 1966, directed by Leslie H. Martinson, written by Lorenzo Semple Jr., starring, of course, the immortal Adam West, Mm -hmm. Burt Ward. So, Adam West obviously is Batman, Burt Ward is Robin. Cesar Romero as the Joker. 
Frank Gorshin as the Riddler, Lee Merriweather as Catwoman, and Burgess Meredith as the Penguin. Apparently, this is the only thing that Lee Merriweather played Catwoman in as. She was not in the the series, and then Eartha Kitt picked up after her in right. the series. Because there was, right, there, I forgot who the other Catwoman um, I, should, I, should, I, I totally know her name. Julie Newmar. Yes. Was yes. Catwoman for the first season. So this for film the... was released between the first and the second season. Oh, okay. Sorry. Yeah. Then my timeline's a little off. So yeah, first it was released between first and second season. Uh, Julie Newmar, both those. And then Eartha Kitt. Is third season. was the third season. Yeah. yeah. Which also I found out that this apparently um, was supposed to be a pilot. They originally intended it as a pilot. It and feels then that way. And they decided um, instead to do production between the seasons and to make it a movie do you remember watching the show i mean i've seen episodes here and there yeah i've never i don't know i don't yeah <laughs> not a fan it's 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 fine <laughs> <laughs> which is funny because i definitely remember at some point some of the, i was getting flashbacks um for certain scenes from this and i was like okay i've definitely seen this before but i do not did not remember most of it yeah as you also going back to something um you said earlier too about kind of the experience of watching it and obviously we'll talk about it a bit more detail but I did so I didn't I didn't think this was a good film yeah <laughs> sorry Sean but I will say this is that I did have at times fun watching it yeah and there's a, the campiness of it which obviously we'll talk about and what it does in relationship to its source material I think is far more sophisticated than some of the more recent Batman movies. Oh, interesting. We could talk about it. So I think like okay. th- its version of camp is for me at least was a bit more nuanced and just funnier than like the Schumacher yeah. versions. Yeah. Of well, yeah. The Batman films. I mean, I think it's it's like m- meant to be funny whereas like totally. some of this other stuff is like it's either like taking itself too seriously or like, you know, I was just listening to your Batman and Robin episode. Amazing episode and it's just Robin, like it's just like pun after pun after pun and you're like just fucking stop already and like this I feel like I don't know there was like a pun here or there but it was mostly like they just like slapped bat in front of everything which like I Correct. liked like it's the bat boat it's the bat gas it's bat and I was just like whoa this is like out of hand but like it was enjoyable like yeah I don't know there were moments of enjoy and there were like two or three moments where I literally just laugh my ass off and we'll maybe get to those moments yeah. I, I tweeted out one of them earlier today um this ridiculous scene where this man gets launched from a like i don't know like a, a jack-in-the-box kind of contraption mm-hmm. and this mannequin just goes flying through the air and then crashes oh, yeah, the water that's really good. Up. and i just i was like oh my god I, like that's fucking hilarious um plot wise so batman and robin are called into action to stop the combined forces of the joker the riddler catwoman and the penguin yeah. Okay. So I had I had some issues with, with with like the setup of all of this. Okay. Um, which I think that the the TV show was like this, but again, like it's been a long time since I've seen episodes. But it's just like they like hand everything to Batman on like a silver platter in a lot of ways. Like they're like, let's pull up the closed circuit TV and see which of our supervillains are still at large. Well, it's these four, so it must be these four. Oh yeah. There's very little. Of the Batman that's a detective. That has oh, yeah. He, like, does, like, no, like, thinking on his own. And even, like, so... I mean, maybe I'm jumping ahead a no, little no, bit. No, no, please but, go ahead. 
But like the Riddler has like the most obscure freaking riddles that like make no sense at all. But Batman does not solve them. Robin is like, he's got the answer like every time, like immediately. And I'm like, that made no sense. He's the boy wonder. I mean, he is the boy wonder. And but I, guess, like, I guess he's the boy wonder at solving riddles. But you're right. They're, the riddles are, it takes him about five seconds to solve them. Like, right but again like batman is doing nothing i mean not, not that he's doing nothing but i like there's yeah it and, feels like a lot is being like handed to him and he's also kind of dumb as shit i mean yeah okay like, if, you, if we just stuff, wanted to say it I, I was oh wa- with catwoman yeah i was watching oh. it it was like and obviously again it has a lot to do with the degree to which this version of the character should not be taken too seriously <laughs> i totally get that but the whole stuff about him not being able to tell like who catwoman is is both interesting because it's kind of also like reflects back and i get it like batman's own like mass identity while yada yada yeah. yada but also a point i was like this guy's a fucking idiot yeah <laughs> like, well and i think yeah on. i mean i think it's like a consistent it's like a consistent trope throughout with batman right like you we were talking earlier about it, batman returns is that the the one with catwoman and uh, Batman Returns. The yeah, yeah, one. yeah. And like they have the moment where like they don't recognize each other when they're masked, and then you know like all this sort of stuff. But like you're like obviously like you're, you're like you're Michelle Pfeiffer and fucking uh, Michael Keaton. Oh my god, my brain. Um, like you know who each other are, like obviously. But it feels so much more ridiculous in this film because well, the mask. Because also. the mask, it's like literally like just covering her eyes, but like. He, as soon as she removes it, he's like, oh, yeah, you. Oh, yeah, cool. And like, you know, it's yeah, it's just it's another level. There's another moment or two also where I had that same kind of feeling of like, wait a minute, this guy's an idiot. And hopefully they'll come back. But it wasn't just that. But it, that was obviously the like the biggest one. So there's this weird kind of plot where it begins with them being called into action because mm-hmm. some Commodore, um, whose name I can't pronounce, um, Schmiddledop, has been kidnapped. Yeah. Or... These villains have stolen his technology, which is a dehydrator. Mm-hmm. I believe the kids nowadays might call it a thirst trap. I'm not entirely sure if those things are one and the I same. Th- I think they're the same. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah okay, yeah. cool. Yeah. So he, they've stolen this thirst trap from him. And what they do is that this thirst trap is used to dehydrate individuals to turn them into kind of dust. So the plot is that they're apparently, again, the villains are going to use this contraption to attack the UN Security Council. And turn everybody into dust and Batman and Robin pretty much kind of have to stop them. And the subplot is, I guess the primary subplot is where they attempt to kidnap Bruce Wayne, obviously not knowing that Bruce Wayne is Batman. They want to kidnap Bruce Wayne because they want to draw Batman out so they can um, kill him, basically. Right. And they use Catwoman in this kind of really interesting, um, where she plays in like civilian clothes, she plays a Russian agent. Right. Who seduces who, Bruce Wayne. Who has a like a Romanian Transylvanian accent. I don't know if you picked <laughs> up on that. I, I was think it's like, more like Northern Siberian personally. I was like, okay. oh yeah, she's clearly doing a Northern Siberian Oh movie. yeah, I'm sure that was like the... Well, on, on the Wikipedia page... It was like page, very well researched. On the Wikipedia page it says that she spent six months living in Siberia to get the accent down. Oh, actually. okay. Yeah, yeah. So that makes a lot of sense. I think it's rather then. authentic. And that's basically the plot. And there's just hijinks and buffoonery. There is a lot of hijinks and buffoonery. So maybe we could talk about the relationship between Batman and Robin or would, Bruce Wayne would, and Dick Grayson. I would love to. Let's, let's do it. So you were also excited to talk about this film in particular because obviously of its campiness <clears throat> and obviously because of its homoeroticism, which the homoeroticism is pretty much any time in any Batman film where you see right. Batman and Robin. But you also tweeted out, in the, here's your opportunity, Kel, to make amends. You said that you wanted to be on the episode with Batman and Robin. Yeah. Because I believe you're also a huge 
Chris O'Donnell stan. I mean, I am, which I think like no one else still, is. Still, or does he still look good? He's still, he still could get it. He's hanging on. He's hanging in there. Yeah, yeah. He's a yeah. Guy. I mean, like I don't even know like what he's doing these days. Isn't I haven't he seen on him. CSI? Is he? I don't. I don't. I don't keep up clearly. <laughs> I think he's on a CSI, and I think he might be on. Like, correct me if I'm wrong. CSI fans out there, <clears throat> I think he's on the CSI with LL Cool J. LL Cool J is on CSI. Yes. There are so many like CSIs and Law and Orders. Like I can't even. I think this is CSI like uh, Nassau County, Long Island. Wait, really? No, 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 I'm kidding. No, <laughs> it, it definitely takes place in like some sort of major city. But it feels like there should be a CSI. There Nassau should. County. There totally should be. That's why I've, it was. It was very believable to me. Um, yeah. I mean, I I've got a soft spot for Chris O'Donnell, but I also think that um, Batman and Robin is has like a great level of camp to it and um the like homoeroticism i think is like super off the charts and um i mean i think it's partially because it's joel schumacher but i feel like there's also like a lot of other stuff happening too that's interesting to me and one of the things that that stood out in your um in your episode on it talking about um batman and robin are like fighting over poison ivy or whatever her alter ego is or whatever and like I think I think he said something about like it seems really misogynist and I think that like maybe it is but it's also like I think there's like another level to it of like that's the only way like they're actually like there's desire for each other and like it's like translating through they're they're fighting over this woman when really like they want to be with each other sort of thing um and like that's the only way they can express it and I was thinking um you know, it's 1997 and I was trying to think of like what's going on in 1997 in, in terms of like the media and like gay portrayals and stuff. And like right. George Michael doesn't even come out till 1998. So like uh. we're still, you know, we're, you know, everybody's still like firmly closeted. Um, I mean, not everyone, but you know what I mean? Like right. it's, it's, still, <laughs> it's, um, it's rough out there. A lot's happened in the, in the last 20 years. It's rough out there. It's interesting that, that you mentioned 20 that 20 years. Well, well, more than 20 years, but yeah, I'm just rounding, rounding down. Um, it's interesting to think about, though, also that in, like what you were just saying reminded me of our episode on the talented Mr. Ripley, which was mm-hmm. that 94? Yeah, I think it's 94. So to think about also kind of the politics of the closet in that film in mm-hmm. relationship to just three years later with, with Batman and Robin. And also obviously to think about like the chances that can or can't be taken with a huge Hollywood blockbuster like batman and robin right where to have them like be openly let's say gay is impossible or mm-hmm. to kind of give that vision of the characters is, is impossible right so obviously what it becomes is kind of homoerotic and as you said kind of this deflection of their desire through the body and the image of poison ivy no mm-hmm. totally yeah yeah is there anything else about the portrayal of homoeroticism in that that kind of i don't know resonates or that you remember being interesting it's been a really long time since I've seen it. Um, and I can't say, but it just, yeah, some of the things I was thinking about too, um, which I don't, not necessarily like the homoeroticism, but like the Bane character who I think is like horrible, but also like in Schumacher's hands, I feel like becomes a sort of like trumped up, like Tom of Finland type character. Uh. Like there was like a, I don't know. There's just like certain things like that where I'm like, okay, like I sort of like see like what you were trying to like, I don't know, infuse it with some sort of like gayness or like camp and like different ways and like ways that were like acceptable and like maybe not, um, not like visible or like readable by like the average like moviegoer. Right. 
Yeah, no, totally. And you're also referencing that this article that you sent to me and Liam. Do you remember the author's name? But we'll we'll put it in the metadata. But this interesting kind of attempt to rehabilitate the movie because obviously, right. and we talked about this also on the show. And I think I was sympathetic to Liam's kind of approach of of thinking about ways in which we could talk about that film without just simply shitting on it. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I appreciate that. So this article that you sent was about how it's a kind of a camp masterpiece. Right. <laughs> and, you know, I think to some degree the author from from what I remember uh from what I remember of the article does a decent job of kind of attempting to rehabilitate it. His kind of um I believe it's him, his entire argument is pretty much about that how it's so self aware as a parody. Mm-hmm. And that it really obviously leans into that. So any kind of criticism about it's failure as a movie has to be taken into account with the fact that it knows it's being a self-parody of a batman film right absolutely and, and to some degree some degree i agree with that but i'm also still not sympathetic to it because it's a terrible movie yeah i mean i will say like of all the batman movies like that is the one that stands out the most in my childhood <laughs> um and not remember seeing it in the theater i don't think i saw it in the theater i honestly think that i watched it um with um some of my family there's sort of i'm i'm the only grandchild on my mom's side of the family and there's sort of this tradition of like at different holidays of sort of like all the women going off and like doing their own thing and then like me and all the men in the family watching movies that were probably not like appropriate i think this one was like probably the most okay but i also watched like deer hunter at like age nine um because like i would get i would get left with like all my uncles and my grandpa and like whatever and so i yeah i'm pretty sure that i watched it with them um but i remember like I don't know. I remember enjoying it and like being sort of like, I don't know, like awestruck by like some of the like the imagery. Like it's just it's all so over the top and like memorable and like, I don't know, just like being sort of like fascinated by all of it. And like, yeah, again, like I don't think it's a good movie. Like I'm not saying that. But yeah, there's like a quality to it for sure. Some of the set production set yeah. design is incredible. And you could tell that they spend a shit ton of money making that film. And they did. Yeah. And yeah, it shows. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So comparing, let's say, that version of Bruce Wayne and Dick Grayson's relationship, how does this one kind of compare? By the way, this film is super fucking horny. I could not believe okay. how horny this fucking children's movie was. Like, everybody wants to fuck. Everybody wants to fuck. But also, can I say that you have said that on almost every episode this season? I mean, that's my that's my tagline. That's your tagline yeah. now? Okay. I'm going to get it tattooed. Okay. I just, like, feel like I haven't heard you say the word horny in any of the other seasons, and I've heard you say it <laughs> so many times this season. Well, because I think also... Yeah. I mean, I think... I think yeah. Batman in general is horny. I think he is. Yeah, yeah. totally. Like, it has a lot to do with like the mask. Like Batman as a character, but like the franchise, like the whole, it, yeah. I'm going to self-consciously not use that term in the next episode and I'll use something else. Like, everybody is so like, sexually aroused in this film. I was going to say, you're going to use something worse. Um, just stick with horny. <laughs> or we're good. This is, um, yeah, it's, it's a rated R podcast. Could just lean into <laughs> the, the language. It's fine. Any euphemisms? Um, well, I thought it was interesting when they, like the very beginning of the film, when they get called back, Bruce and Dick are like in a Corvette, like cruising down the highway. Like they are like literally cruising, like not, you know, <laughs> obviously not in the um, gay euphemistic sense, but like there's just something about like they're out for a Sunday drive together. Like where are they headed? And then they're like called back and whatever. Um, but you also get that scene right at the very beginning where the filmmakers are like, oh, no, no, they're not gay, where they're flying in the helicopter 
over a roof filled with women oh, yeah. and the women are like cheering and looking at them and like uh, they're all like in bikinis yeah, and, yeah. And but also immediately after are like four uniformed men who also like salute them oh, salute them yeah yeah and so the i cops. was like there's like a you know like everybody loves batman and robin yeah. i just i tweeted about that scene too and i was like oh this is definitely an homage to the beginning of fellini's la dolce vita have you seen it i have not seen there's it. a helicopter scene with this kind of statue of jesus that's flying over i believe rome okay and it's i was like oh yeah this is la dolce vita it's not a nod to la dolce vita but i was like oh yeah it reminded me of that but it also reminded me of it because then there's that scene where they cut to the park and <clears> the, <throat> the dude looks up and he's like it's good to know and he's looking up and he's like it's oh, good yeah. to know those fellows are up there protecting us and it was kind of it's almost like godlike imagery yeah yeah which i found interesting and that did also remind me of schumacher's batman where there are especially in the beginning i believe of the that fourth one of these shots when they're getting dressed and they're kind of um the the angles are of the cameras like looking mm-hmm, up mm-hmm. and it has this kind of like godlike quality to the characters yeah and it reminded me just like of that too so yeah so what else can we make about their relationship so bruce wayne i think is kind of dumb there's also the, those interesting kind of psychosexual elements later on when Bruce Wayne is trying to hook up with Russian Catwoman. Oh yeah, and there's cameras like on the Batmobile that they could peek into and see like what's going on. Yeah, and like Robin is like conflicted about like watching, but yes. like wants to watch and is like this is indecent and like, and part of me was like, is it indecent because he's with someone who's not you or is it indecent because it's like sexual? I don't know. And there's also like that whole moment too with, I think she calls herself Kitka Catwoman as her like alter ego or whatever. She's like a long, ridiculous Russian name. Yeah. But she goes by, she goes by Kitka. Right. And she, her and Bruce are like in this carriage and she's like, close your eyes and like fantasize. And he's like, I'm almost at the climax. Yes. And I was like, oh my God, what is happening here? <laughs> no, this totally. is like a kid's movie, right? It like, is. I don't. And then later on in the hotel room, they they kiss um, in a way that human beings should not be kissing. This really like seems like they're just like mashing their faces together. I'm like, that's not how there's human a lo- beings There's kiss. a lot of face mashing. Yeah. There's a lot of face mashing. I mean, I don't think, it, you know, it's possible that Bruce Wayne doesn't know how to kiss women. So. Oh, yeah. Interesting. And you oh, see that played oh, out. Oh, wait. Yeah. Can I say? I- <laughs> you also forgot the moment, though, also where Alfred suggests to Robin, like, oh, yeah, no, we should just take a peek in just quickly and see, like, what's going on. Oh, yeah. I mean, well, okay. So in all of this, too, like, yeah, what's Alfred's role in in, in Bruce and Dick's relationship? And in the article, one of the articles you sent me, I think it's the Sasha Torres article. So you shared this uh, really excellent article by Sasha Torres uh, regarding Batman and camp and pop culture. And we should talk about it. And in it, I think at some point, the article makes mention of how it's um, that Alfred maybe was written out or they tried to write him out at some point. Yeah. Uh, they killed him off basically again yeah. to, um, to like de uh, mystify or to kind of remove any sort of like homoeroticism like, yeah. from the comic. Yeah. So like, Oh, this idea of like, like these three dudes living together is kind of weird. So let's kill one of them off and make it like less gay in some sort of yeah. weird way. But I also feel like killing off Alfred, He's not the one you kill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like he's like obviously like Bruce's caretaker. Like that makes more sense. It's more, it's it's a weird dynamic, but like it's maybe more like father son sort totally. of thing happening. Whereas like yeah, just 
leaving leaving Batman and Robin on their own. Now they can do whatever they want because Alfred isn't watching over them, right? The dad, yeah, the father figure is no longer there. Um, Speaking of George Michael, the father figure is gone. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you. Good good shout out yeah, there. Thank you. Um, Try. Uh, when uh, Bruce Wayne and Kitka are on their romantic date, they're dancing together. And, um, you know, they have their arms around each other. But um, Bruce does not actually touch her back. He is like uh, limp wristed and is like has his hand that. like behind her back and is not actually like holding. He's like holding your hand, you know, as you I feel like I can't folks aren't going to get a good visual. <laughs> but, you know, they're they're holding hands. She has her arm like wrapped around his shoulder or whatever. And yeah, he just has his hand like limp wristed behind her back. And like there's, you know, there's like a couple of things happening right there, right? Like there's the, the limp wrist, which is, you know, our like coded gay thing. But also like he, it seems like he doesn't like want to touch her or, or like doesn't know how to touch her or yeah, there's like something happening there because he, he's supposed to be interested in her, right? But like. Oh, he falls yeah. in love with her. Like, os- like instantly. Yeah, instantly. Yeah. And I mean, she is an absolute like smoke show. She's a gorgeous woman. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's yeah it, and it's interesting again to think well i mean now though something i'm thinking about i wonder like about like the kissing i'm pretty sure maybe well i mean 1966 in the movies you definitely could have shown like people making well, that's out always but it's also to think of like other movies at the film. time yeah because i think it's hard to sort of frame it because it is supposed to be more of like a kid's film right so like 1966 like sure there was like a lot of stuff going on but like yeah maybe not in a kid's movie and but they just didn't sell it well no Nobody coming when nobody takes the took of that. Like, no, kiss like human beings, goddammit. Not like that. Yeah. It's like, this is the best we can do. It's like take 35 and it's just not working. Let's just yeah. go with it. Fuck it. Well, there's also, so there's a 1966 article about Batman in the New York Times. It's called The Cape Crusader of Camp. And there's actually a quote from, um, from Adam West that says, um, with the number of homosexuals in this country, if we get that large audience, fine. Just add them to the Nielsen ratings. Yeah. Um, which is amazing also that it was just like that openly discussed too I kind of think yeah I don't know it's really interesting I mean you know um, there's definitely some um, F-bombs dropped Um, they call it um, one of the producers calls it like faggy and is that dozier i believe and funsies yeah that's the dude who was tapped to i think first write it and he was kind of shocked he's like what am i going to do with this yeah kind yeah of they called him the king of camp and he was like i don't like camp it sounds faggy and yeah. funsies which that sounds great faggy and funsies <laughs> sounds great to me i'm um, <laughs> sign me up it sounds like an awesome punk band name it does yeah. i would yeah so it's, may- it's the name of my next scene so maybe we could talk about you should definitely make a zine about the homoerotics of batman and robin I feel like it's probably been done, but there's yeah. There's also like, I mean, I, I figured you'd also love this because there's pirates and there's semen all over this There, film. There is semen yeah. all over this all movie. All <laughs> over this fucking film. I was like, oh my God, there's pirates. Like, pirates I know, I are didn't really expect gay. the pirates. Yeah, I was very excited. It's kind of cool. Maybe now's the time to talk about what this film is doing in relationship to camp and maybe what it's doing in relationship to pop culture. So one of the interesting things about the article that I'm not entirely sure, but this is the Torres article. Yeah, yeah. And I'll maybe I'll send a link to it. Um, if you could do a such, or maybe I'll just kind of like put the bibliographical information in the metadata. But one of the things I wasn't totally convinced about. So in the article, Torres makes this distinction about how camp is a response to pop art, and to think about the argument she makes is again that camp is a way to kind of rehabilitate the pretensions or the elitism of pop art. Mm-hmm. So that camp becomes basically a way to challenge 
the again like almost like the high modernness kind of appeal to certain aspects of pop art mm-hmm. and that batman is clearly much more camp because there is this kind of much more mm-hmm. popular but not in the sense of like pop culture but there's this kind of um maybe democratic aspect to the character or to the medium of tv and the film mm-hmm. and that it's a kind of antidote to again the pretensions of pop art and i wasn't entirely convinced about that argument but Anyway, I mean, I'd like to hear what you... So we should also kind of, like, again, historically t- contextualize it. So, like, Sontag's Notes mm. on Camp was 1964. Okay. I'm glad that you knew that. Yeah. I did some research. Against Interpretation, which is where it was recollected, came out actually in 1966. Okay. And again, to kind of, like, historically contextualize it. So the Kinsey, the first Kinsey Report was in the late 1940s, maybe, like, 1948. Mm-hmm. The second one was in the early 1950s. Mm-hmm. And the other interesting connection to make, which I think we've talked about before on the podcast is Frederick Wortham, who was this psychologist who wrote this book in, I believe, 1940, 1952 or 1954 called The Seduction of the Innocent. 1954. There you go. In which he basically um, took comic books and, and I think specifically Batman and Robin to task. He basically deployed kind of psychoanalytic criticism in the worst possible way in a really kind of homophobic uh, attempt to illustrate how all these comics are ruining like young people Mm -hmm. so it's interesting i think in the long broader historical view of like camp homoeroticism queer desire to think about 1966 in relationship obviously to like what's come before and also we're only like a few years away from stonewall right so there's a lot there there's a lot you just (laughs) just just threw a lot lot at me but maybe we can just talk about camp (laughs) because i'm not entirely like familiar with it also as an aesthetic yeah i mean i i agree with you i don't entirely buy the argument that it's um like a response against pop art and like i think yeah i don't know to me also like isn't pop art to me is like not necessarily the most like elitist thing either like isn't it trying to like i agree take like the sort of i mean like you know, uh, not the biggest Warhol fan, but I think that like, you know, he's, he's trying to take like really like ordinary objects and like show how like prolific they are and show or not maybe prolific isn't the word, but like ubiquitous. Yeah, that's, yeah, I guess that's, that's what we're looking for, right? Like how ubiquitous these objects are in our life. I mean, it's like, you know, it's the Campbell soup scan. It's the, it's Marilyn Monroe. It's all this stuff. So I think that like, yeah, that doesn't, that doesn't like just it doesn't make sense to me because I see them as intimately related. I think so too, and not as not even necessarily antagonistic to one another. Right. I also think like even um, something about the um, which we only see this sort of at the end and like the end fight scene in this movie, but the like the pows and the yes. like a pow like that feels yeah. very like pop art to me. I don't know totally right like because seeing those, I was reminded of like the Roy Lichtenstein's. Uh, you know the comic like strip paintings right that that specifically use that kind of imagery and those paintings and kind of Lincolnstein becomes famous in the early I think late 50s early 60s -hmm. so the aesthetic here and obviously again he's clearly drawn from the original source material of the comic books but to see it replicated on the screen in this way to me was a clear reference to those kind of modes of pop art right Absolutely. The thing that I think was sort of unexpected for me was I wasn't expecting, um, you know, like the the producers and the actors to be like as engaged in this conversation of camp at the time. Like I wasn't expecting that to be like 
oh yeah we're doing camp or like we're not like i don't think that was like really surprising to me it was yes and that's where i felt like holy shit like this film in many respects in relationship again to its self-awareness was to me so much more sophisticated than like some of the Schumacher stuff because for mm-hmm. me the Schumacher stuff felt so over the top right. or again when it fell into kind of self-parody then it was like well it's so I don't know it's like so self-reflexive that it loses any sort of nuance and it's almost like hitting over the head right where in this film when it is campy and it's ridiculous and it's queer it's doing it I feel like in a very both subtle way and nuanced way and also just like a funnier way yeah well and it feels it feels like they're just like trying to like have fun and be silly and like not take themselves seriously and like yeah i think it's you know like like these later films it becomes like a sort of like meta commentary on camp yes. like it's camp but you're also like commenting on camp and like also like I, it it just it becomes like more like belabored or like Whereas, like, it just feels like they're just, like, doing it and, like, just, like, having a good time. Yeah. And I also, I mean, that might also have something to do with the fact that, again, because it was, like, the mid-1960s, it all felt novel. Yeah. So by the time we get, obviously, to, like, the Batman and Robin in the late 90s, it's already kind of perhaps been exhausted in certain ways. Or that it's difficult, I guess, to kind of reinvigorate it or to do something, like, wonderfully new with those kind of ideas and the concepts. Or at least maybe within kind of the context of, like, Batman and Robin. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. Like, it'd be interesting to think about, like, what was John Waters doing in, the, like, the late, late 90s? And how was he approaching, obviously, kind of yeah. these... I want to see a John Waters issues. Batman. <laughs> yes, exactly. DC, can can somebody make that happen, please? Like, now. Liam's out in LA. He should work on that. Yeah, get it together. Yeah, fucking... What are you doing, Liam? Liam, get in touch with your Hollywood connects. Well, so, so he can do some stuff out there. We can, like run down to baltimore and you know that's right yeah, yeah just yeah. like make some connections he's his favorite restaurant is prune which is in the city and you know we could go there there you go great. we're in the city yeah uh we're in the city yeah it's by the way this at, is just information for anyone who wants to stalk john waters <laughs> it's at first and first although it is it is one of my favorite restaurants not because of john waters but because it is a phenomenal restaurant woman owned um almost entirely female staff and um what kind of food Contemporary American. Um, you must sound ashamed to say that contemporary. Because like it just like 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 what is that? Like I'm sorry, what is that? But um, she wrote the book. Uh, what is it? Uh, I don't even know. But the, the the woman who runs it is amazing, and it is a delightful restaurant. It's at First and First in Manhattan, and um, the food is great. And I've never seen John Waters there, although I would love to run into John Fingers Waters crossed. There. And if you see him, just yell at him like, "Make a Batman film! What are you waiting for?" Yeah, I mean, it seems like up his up his alley. Like he'd be into he'd be into that. So, any um, I guess before we move on, because there are other interesting kind of political questions regarding this film, and we obviously we could take our time getting there. But any other thoughts, maybe on the like the connection to camp or pop culture? Just want to make sure we cover our bases. Um. Yeah, bases should be covered. Um, I feel like I had other things to say, but I don't remember any of them. That's I'm looking at the article to see. I feel like I'm in class and I'm like, oh, I, <laughs> I swear, I swear I did the reading. Let me just oh, check what I read. Okay, no, we talked about this um, before we started recording, but and you came up with a really uh, cool oh. way to describe it. So in this article again by Torres, she makes the claim that the Bruce Wayne Batman dynamic is already. In a, in a certain way, um, replicates a gay relationship, so mm-hmm. that basically, like both Bruce Wayne and Batman are representatives of like different personas within 
a dyad already, as let's say seen in a gay relationship. But I thought that was really kind of fascinating. Yes. And you then said, yes, because he is kind of. Um, I was <laughs> sorry. It's okay. <laughs> We're just putting you on the spot. I know. You're just putting me on the spot and it makes me feel comfortable. <laughs> um, no, it's totally fine. Um, I, I think there's like a, there's a double closeting happening of like, you know, he's, he's both Batman and he's gay. And so like. Yeah, I don't know. I I couldn't articulately say it earlier. I'm not going to be able to. No, you did articulately say it. Well, just the idea idea that he's he's in in both uh, identities, like rejecting um, versions of himself. Right, right. So, like, you know, he as as Bruce Wayne, he you know can't admit that he's Batman, and you know, as this like straight hero, he can't admit that he's gay. Um, So there's yeah. Yeah, I don't know. He's Again, just stuck in that closet twice over. He's just stuck over. in that closet twice over. Yeah, there's also, can I just say, there is like a ton of phallic imagery yes. in this in this uh, film, which I like tweeted that. It was like the only thing I had to say while I was watching it besides that it was long. So the one thing, and this kind of leads to the, I guess, the other thing that I want to talk about is um, its relationship to, for example, like the Cuban Missile Crisis and oh, Cold, yeah. Cold War politics. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, lots of missiles just fucking just being launched all over the place. Lots of dudes riding umbrellas. Oh yeah! Remember that scene? Yeah. The submarines. The submarines. There's the, the bat poles. There's missiles. The there's poles, rockets. There's yeah. It's just like left and right. Yeah, they ride. Yeah, they all ride these umbrellas. The villains do. Yeah, it is bizarre. Yeah, but you're right. It's it's funny because I saw your tweet, and then I then 15 minutes or 20 minutes later, I saw that scene. I was like, oh, there you go, phallic imagery. Yeah, well, and also like when when the, they see, I forget who it is, sees them like ride by on the the villains on their umbrellas or whatever, is like, oh, is it like Halloween? And so there's like some like interesting thing. I don't know. There's something happening there. No, totally. But yes, there's a ton of phallic imagery there here. So there's so much phallic imagery. So maybe we should talk. Should we talk about the missiles, the Cuban missile? So the Cuban missile crisis was in '62. Yeah. So just a couple of years before this. So I remember seeing. You know, I was watching it last night and earlier today and seeing those missiles launch from the sea. And I was like, holy shit, that's kind of like really super dark imagery mm-hmm. to put in a, in a children's film. Yeah. And to kind of think about, again, the implications of that and just kind of how obviously it was just all over the cultural imagination in the mid 60s. This idea of like missile launches potentially leading to the end of the world. Right. Well, and that's the whole the like pseudo UN council or whatever is like trying to like come to sort of some kind of peace agreement. And then even like when Bruce is like seducing Kitka or she's seducing him or like whatever the fuck is happening, like he says something about like we really should do something about this curtain between our countries. And I was like, whoa. But they also use (laughs) terms like 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 political commentary in a kid's Batman movie. And it's obviously played play for last, but in certain respects, it is kind of, I mean, it's played for last, but it's serious in the sense that it's re- responding to the politics of the day. Because at some point, like, Bruce calls himself a capitalist, and I think he uses, oh, like, the yeah. term, like, bourgeois, and I forget exactly what the, what what he says, but he, he says something about, like, yeah, the, the bourgeois life in the United States or something. Mm-hmm. And it's really fascinating. It's like, holy shit, like, those terms are, like, being explicitly used in this film. Yeah. And it kind of, again, with Catwoman as Kitka, it's this, you know, it's like typical American kind of fear of Cold War infiltration, Mm -hmm. of espionage, of subversion. 
but it's it's done and it, it, i'm not saying it's done in any sort of way that it's critical of american foreign policy but right. it is i think just kind of fascinating to find those politics in this film in that way yeah well i thought it, i i like was super wasn't expecting that i guess and like from the moment i mean i think i knew the moment that they like first show Kitka and she has like her Russian accent I was like oh that's Catwoman like you you know but also like I think that was really interesting choice to make that her alter ego yeah like I mean it's like a fake alter ego but like whatever like it's still right it's still really fascinating yeah and that scene where he's like oh like what are we gonna do about this curtain between our countries like is that in some sort of way an actual let's say I don't know appeal to a peace process right like Batman's our delegate for peace. Who knows? I mean, hopefully not, because <laughs> again, not. he is a bourgeois capitalist. Yeah, no, this film. But I, again, going back to kind of, it didn't feel like a slog. Like I was, I was watching it. I was laughing along with it. Right. I had fun at moments. Not that I was entirely engaged with this, because you know, every once in a while, I turn look to my phone, like fire Twitter. But I did have fun watching it. I do have to say. And again, I had fun watching it because maybe my expectations for it were kind of low. Oh, my expectations were very low. Yeah, I would not. I'm not going to go back to this anytime soon. But I'm kind of. I'm maybe not, I shouldn't say I'm glad I'm. I watched it because I'm kind of like doing my job. Yeah. <laughs> like, Liam was like, "No, we have to do this film." I'm like, okay, I'll watch it. But um, yeah, I, I had a, I had a decent time watching it. Yeah. Um, maybe I missed this, and maybe this is ignorant of me to ask this question. But did you th- at the beginning of the season? Did you all lay out the Batman movies you were going to watch? Okay. I yes, missed, I missed that episode. So this was you're not missing on much, but this was definitely on. Uh, yeah, the docket. We're like we should return okay. to Batman sixty six. I mean, I think it's I think it's necessary when you're talking about Batman because you're not going to do the television series because that's too complicated. So this is like a nice you get the the gist of the television series without doing the television series. And Batman appeared on screen before in serialized versions, and I believe the, in the forties, uh, maybe okay. even in the, in the fifties. But this is the first full feature length Batman film. Mm-hmm. So it felt kind of essential, obviously, to do it in relationship to that. The other interesting thing for me watching this in relationship to how it deals with the villains, we never really talked about the villains, is how reminiscent it was of all of these like newer films where all of these fucking villains like have to be in it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Where so, it has to be like a big ensemble cast. It has thing. to be a huge ensemble cast. And... It was just kind of like, oh, okay, they, they were doing that even in the 1960s. Yeah. Well, also, yeah, I mean, I didn't understand the motivation for, like, the four of them working together. Like, they there's they did, like, very little to, like, establish for a movie that was an hour and 44 minutes. An hour and 44 minutes. They did, minutes. A, like, very little to, like, establish, like, what, what was happening with them. Yeah. And, like, why they decided to work together other than that they, like, want to take over the world. World domination. We don't know. And at some point early on, yeah, Batman says, like, oh, my God, all four of them together. It's like, if it was if it was domination. one, it would be, if it was just two, it would just be Gotham. If it was three, it would be the United States. But four, that's the world. And you're like, oh, okay. I don't know how we got there, but sure. We should also maybe briefly talk about how hideously racist the representations of the UN Security Council members oh. are. Like, just the worst kind of caricatures. It's really rough. Yeah, it's really rough. I, that was a once, and obviously the same thing also with like the Russian agents. But this, as you said, yeah. this horrible accent. But yeah, watching that I was like, oh, these are not good representations mm-hmm. of like the person from Spain, the person from France, the person from Nigeria. I was like, this is not a good scene. It is horrible. I will say though, I was surprised that they actually had them speaking 
their native their languages. languages. I like I was like pleasantly surprised <laughs> that they didn't just like give them all horrible accents, but there was a lot of other horrible stuff happening for sure. Well, they know so the there's that just like really super like over the top um caricature of like the Irish policeman who I totally forgot. Oh I forgot what yeah, the, the character's name is, but I was like I totally forgot about that dude as well. He's like O'Hara or something. I think because so because he's Irish. Because he's Irish, yeah, and he has a really he has outlandish like a, Irish. He has like a brogue. thick Irish accent, not even like an Irish like American accent. Like he sounds like he's like. Just came over yesterday. Yes, totally. And I'm like, where is where where's that coming from? <laughs> like, where's that guy's story? Yeah. Like, because I'm pretty sure he was born and raised here. Like, oh, why yeah. is he speaking like that? But did you notice one of the things I noticed though? They show um, a map of quote unquote Gotham, and it's New York City. Oh, I just, it is like I actually that. New York City. When was that? Um, they're talking about like where one of the boats are like one of the the submarine, yeah, or, like, or the I submarine something, and the 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 uh commissioner gordon and o'hara and they're looking at this map and they have all these little like flags or whatever and i'm like that's manhattan that's long island (laughs) (laughs) and then at some point they like like it's like the gotham river or something but at some point they definitely like the east river and i'm like guys we're in gotham i would have been better if it was the gowanus canal yeah they're like oh yeah we're in the gowanus canal right now and all we need to do is rise or make the gowanus canal raise up the super fun site that it is and its waters will destroy the rest of the city is not far from the truth yeah it's not far from the truth yeah um but yeah i thought it was interesting that they you know because there's always like you know is gotham new york and then there's actually like a fucking map of new york i'm like you guys couldn't like rig together some like phony fake map yeah (laughs) it was outside of their budget apparently apparently so anything else kel about this majestic Um, Well, not not necessarily about the film itself, but um, I wanted to say something more about um, is it Wortham? Is that the the guy? Frederick, I believe. Yeah, the seduction of the innocent. Yeah, um, I just think it's interesting that which I I don't think I was I knew this, but that that he like so um, that he pointed out how like blatant he thought the like homoeroticism was and like how obvious, like he says it's like a fantasy life for homosexuals. And I think, I don't want to say that like it lends like legitimacy to the, (laughs) to the gayness of Batman and Robin, but I think it's something interesting when, um, you know, you're like, you're doing a queer reading of something or like, I think, you know, I talk about this in my own work and I think Taurus talks about it a little bit too, or it might be actually be the other article, one of the articles. Um, I read, I, so much. To, yeah. I read so much. Actually, I think it is in the other one. It's um, Medhurst, uh, Batman Deviants and Camp, um, talking about sort of like when you don't have representations of queerness, you you find them, you make them like, huh. and um you know, like you, you read into these characters and like, maybe there is something there, but like you want there to be more there because there's, there's not that representation. So, um, sort of like querying these things for, for yourself to see those representations. So I think it's interesting to have someone sort of like take such a like homophobic attack on it is in some ways it like, like lends credibility to the fact that there is this like underlying like queerness and like homoeroticism between Batman and Robin. Like if you're like railing against it so much, like 
maybe that means yeah. there's actually something there. I don't know. I mean, I think there is absolutely something there, but you know what I mean. Yeah, no. Well, I mean, it's the diff- distinction also between, let's say, pointing out the homoeroticism of it and, let's say, then turning that homoeroticism into a homophobia or deploying it for homophobic reasons. Right. Well, and I think, yeah, there's something different between saying like, oh, this is like homoerotic or homosocial and saying like, this is gay. Yes. <laughs> no, yes. Very good. Because one of the things, I'm glad you said that too, because thinking about, let's say, reading the Batman <clears throat> franchise and this film in particular as like homoerotic, let's say, and about its kind of take on sexuality. I was like, oh, it's in many respects, it's far more subversive to, again, like to think about, let's say, Batman sexuality, again, on that spectrum, mm-hmm. rather than simply pinning him down with any individual label in terms of sexuality because of the openness of it in some sort of way might be more transgressive than simply saying like oh yeah he's a closet gay man or no he's clearly straight and just kind of letting that play of sexuality kind of like unfold yeah and letting then those like interpretations like those modes of desire kind of i mean naturally might be too strong of a word the wrong word but letting them arise in relationship to the text yeah which absolutely which i think that like um i think in a lot of ways in like not just in Batman, but in like films of this time and like earlier stuff, like it it allows for like so much more like interpretation and so much more like nuance for desire and that sort of thing. And I think, and to, to be more transgressive and all this sort of stuff. And that when you have like a blatantly like, like gay, not necessarily queer character that like it, it takes out a lot of the like, I don't know, the more like subversive elements to it, I think. Yeah. Um, if that makes sense that no, like, I you're like, you're like sense. sanitizing it in some sort of way. Yeah. Um, and like, I think that like, uh, yeah, leaving it sort of like up in the air and like to interpretation and all this sort of stuff, like, um, creates more possibility. No. Yeah. I think that's a great way to put it. Yeah. yeah. So just quickly also, because you've done research on this, what's going on and you don't, obviously it's not a test, but can you maybe just give us, um, a feel for What's going on, let's say, in queer cinema at the time? Not obviously just 1966, maybe a couple of years before or after. Um, I mean, there's a lot of, like, Warhol stuff happening at the time. Um, I mean, like, my own research, like, Flesh is um, put out by Warhol, but is actually Paul Morrissey. Comes out in 68, I think. Okay. Um, and so, like, some of his films that are, like, slightly before that is, like... Blowjob. Right. What year's Blowjob? It's just like, a, I want to say it's like 64, 65. Okay. In the so wheelhouse. It's like right around there. Um, Man, I'm like blanking on anything that no, is no. not Warhol right now. <laughs> like is his like pop art has like infiltrated my brain. Well, it's also, um, I mean, yeah, no, I mean, I'm, one of the things that I was thinking about too was, and it's been a while since I've read it. So the years are a little bit off for me and maybe you can clarify but thinking about for example like delaney in times square red times square blue mm-hmm. cruising like the, the the movie theaters in times square mm-hmm. and thinking about what years he was doing that like would that have been like the late 60s or was that like in early 70s i want to say yeah i think what he's talking about like is 70s although delaney has been like cruising new york like as as long as he's been yeah. here so like it's certainly in the late 60s so it yeah it could be but i mean Times Square is like hopping at the time for sure. And there's, yeah, a lot of that stuff is happening then. Um, I just, yeah, I guess my interest or my general questioning is kind of just this intersection between, let's say, 
um, again, like the homoeroticism and like the mainstream, let's say homoeroticism of a film like this. Right. And the more, let's say, hidden or closeted um, experiences of like queer cinema. Right. That obviously are being circulated and people are watching these films and talking about them and writing about them. But they're n- not mainstream in any sort of fucking way. Of right. Course. Well, and also um, Boys in the Sand, which is like the first like mainstream gay porn is like 68. So it's like right around there, it, like predates Deep Throat um and was you know was a was a big fucking deal so like there's definitely like i feel like a lot of that stuff is sort of i don't know not i don't want to say like hitting its peak but there's definitely like there's there's stuff happening yeah it's in the air it's in the air (laughs) yeah it's 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 there even though it's obviously still like very much um in many respects hidden it's very yeah in many respects it's like hidden underground i mean i think again like boys in the sands a couple years after this but i think i i just feel like i always have to mention it because um it's the first um porn of any kind to be reviewed by variety magazine and it's the first um i believe to be advertised by the new york times um and for it to be a gay porn to be the first of like both of those is like kind of a big fucking deal um yeah i don't know anyway so there's there's gay stuff happening (laughs) have you done zine work on that one um it's in my Times square zine okay yeah cool which there are very limited copies left if people want them well i mean we were gonna plug your work but anything else i mean i don't think i have anything else to say about this film other than that it's really yeah it's something it's definitely something ducks he doesn't kill the ducks he doesn't kill the ducks. I'm yeah. That, I mean, that scene is like so. He has I for folks who haven't seen it, he has this bomb that he's like trying to get rid of, and he's like running all around the docks, and he like runs out. He like tells all the people to like flee this bar, and then he like runs out, and there's like a baby, and then there's nuns, and then there's ducks, and then there's babies again, like and a then, marching band at some point. Oh, there's a marching band and like all this stuff, and but he doesn't he. He doesn't kill anybody and he doesn't kill the ducks. Because so. he's a hero. Yeah. He's a hero. It's funny too because after that scene, Robin says something along the lines of like, oh, hey, why'd you why'd you save that bar of drunks? Oh, yeah. He <laughs> like was... totally. And Batman's like, well, just because they're drunks, Robin, doesn't mean that they deserve to be blown up by a fucking bomb. He says something like they're still human or something <laughs> yeah. like that. And I'm like, whoa. Like, Also, just one more thing I wanted to say early in the film, um, they make a point to say that Batman and Robin are not vigilantes and that they are deputized by the yes. the police department. Yeah. And I thought that was really interesting because that's his whole thing is like he's he's a fucking rich dude vigilante, right? Like so they're trying to like like legitimize him and they they even make some comment like like vigilanteism is like bad. And again, it's for kids, I get it. Like but I thought that was really interesting that they like made a point of like doing that. Yeah, they've been san that that part of it has been sanitized. Yeah, like they're just cops, pretty much. Yeah, they're like fancy, fancy wearing cops, fancy outfit wearing cops. Which is another really campy and ridiculous thing about it too, because all of like their equipment is just except for like the Batmobile is like parked in public. So when oh, they like have to yeah. go on like the back copter, they just drive to where like the back copter is parked, or they get on like on a bat boat and it's just well, at the dock. Also, when Robin and Alfred are tailing. Kitka and Bruce on the date they do it in the Batmobile like does nobody see you nobody sees them no it's it's a real like there's only like 5,000 people living in Gotham City it's a very actually it's a big city but it's remarkably uninhabited apparently (laughs) it's because of the uh the rents are just so fucking absurd just a whole bunch of like the rent is too damn high yeah the rent is too damn high a whole bunch of like Silicon Valley bros that's a I mean 
Yeah, it seems that way. Although now I would not mind a vigilante just walking through the streets of San Francisco, like beating the shit out of like Google, like CEOs. I mean, that sounds like actually the kind of like, like, vigilante. Yeah, I could like sucker punching some some Google folks. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it'd be it'd be a destroying that. those Google buses, man. Fuck those Google buses. Yeah, but like you know, like all all the all the people on top, not not our our poor workers. Of course not. So any um yeah, I guess that's it. Right? I yeah, I don't know. I don't have anything else to say. Liam's not here, so he can't be like, No, actually you're missing out on this. Um, so Kel, do you wanna p- plug your amazing work? Sure, why not? Um, so yeah, I make scenes about queer sailors, which as we said, there are a lot of there's a lot of semen in this movie. Um and <laughs> more ways than one. More ways than one. Um, and also have one about um porn and sex work in Times Square in the 60s and 70s. Um, you can find all my stuff at hellotheresailor.etsy.com. Yeah. And we'll put a link to Kel's amazing work in the metadata so you can find it there. Sounds good. Yeah. So I think we did it. I think we survived without Liam. Even I, though I hope so. Oh, Liam. <laughs> Liam's going to listen and be like, what is this garbage? <laughs> no, I think we did great. We I did great. We did yeah, good. yeah. Well, let's see what the file sounds like. But... I was George Rogopoulos. I was Kel Garbinski. And this was... Uberbusters. Uberbusters.